There is nothing quite like a simple, solid friendship story to really bring you back to what it felt like to be a kid. And that is exactly what you get in the book we're discussing on this week's episode, Judy Bloom's Just As Long As We're Together. Judy Bloom is obviously one of the queens of SSR, and she published this particular gem in 1987, six years before its companion title, Here's to You, Rachel Robinson, Hit Shelves. Just As Long As We're Together tells the story of 12-year-old Stephanie Hirsch, who has recently come home from a full summer at camp to start middle school. Stephanie expects to navigate this major life change with her BFF, Rachel Robinson, at her side. But things get a little murky when a cool new friend named Allison joins the mix. Allison has recently moved to town from Los Angeles, and she has a celebrity for a mom. Plus, she seems to understand Stephanie in ways that Rachel just doesn't anymore. You know that whole thing about three being a crowd? It's put to the test in this book. Stephanie's family is also being put to the test. About halfway through the book, she realizes that her dad hasn't actually been on an extended business trip to California, but that her parents are separating. To cope with the changes she's experiencing at home and at school, Stephanie turns largely to secrecy and food, and you can only imagine how that plays out. In this episode, you'll hear me chat with my guest about the problematic narrative about weight and body image that's presented in this book, but also all of the wonderful things about it, chiefly the way, like so many other Judy Bloom books, it brings us right back to middle school and the feelings of becoming a teenager, learning to navigate friendships, bracing ourselves for puberty, and hanging posters of celebrities on our bedroom walls. Or ceilings, if you're like Stephanie Hirsch. I am super excited to introduce you to this week's guest, who happens to be one of the co-authors of one of my favorite books of the last few years. And I know a lot of you feel the same way. Hey, ladies. Caroline Moss is also the author of the Work It Girl series, a set of empowering biographies featuring contemporary women like J.K. Rowling and Oprah Winfrey in the world of work. Caroline's work has appeared in so many other amazing outlets, including the New York Times, New York Magazine, Cosmopolitan, The Hairpin, Racked, Vice, and more. She lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. Caroline is also a fantastic Twitter follow. Check her out at Caroline Moss. Caroline and I had a ton of fun talking all things middle school, friends, and Judy Bloom for this episode, and I just know you're going to love it. If you are loving what you hear, please consider leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes. I know I say it every week, but these ratings and reviews really are so important as I continue to grow SSR. You can also support the show by ordering your very own SSR bookmark set, tote bag, or t-shirt at www.ssrpodcast.com shop, or by becoming a Patreon sponsor. Joining the Patreon family means that you contribute a few dollars each month to the production of the show in return for some awesome rewards, including monthly newsletters, free shipping on merch, on-demand book recommendations, bonus episodes, and more. Learn all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you are already supporting SSR on Patreon, please know how much I appreciate you. If you're not following SSR on social media yet, come on over. We are at SSRpod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Tagging the episodes you're listening to and loving is another great way to support the show and to help us grow. I love, love, love when you screenshot episodes and share them to your Instagram stories. I have a feeling that you're really going to enjoy this week's app, and if if you do, then I challenge you to post it to your stories. Don't forget to tag SSR Pod. On a final note before we jump into the episode, I have to tell you that I've been hearing such good things from everyone who's given Libro FM a try so far. Truthfully, audiobooks are a fairly new part of my reading routine, and as far as I'm concerned, this platform is the only way to go. You should definitely check it out, especially since I have an awesome discount code for you. In case you missed it, Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libro.fm, I support my favorite Brooklyn indie books are magic, but you can choose any store you want. Enjoy! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. 
So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR podcast. Hi, Caroline. Welcome to SSR. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We have been planning this for a while. And so the book we're talking about, yeah, the book we're talking about, (laughs) Judy Bloom's Just As Long As We're Together has been sitting on my desk for, I think I'm going to say like two months. We've had this Mm -hmm. on the calendar. Mm -hmm. I've been like holding off on wanting to read it. I've been reading a lot of sci-fi and fantasy for the podcast recently, which I'm learning to appreciate, but isn't always my go-to genre. So I was very excited for some Judy Bloom, like fun friendship fiction. Yes, this is really a true throwback, I think. And it's like a cla- it's like a classic. Yeah. There's nothing crazy about it. It's a nice story about friends, which is Judy Bloom's sort of bread and butter, right? Yeah. It's a nice story about what it's like to be in seventh grade. Yeah, I know. A place I never really wanted to return to. Yeah, and I'm I think cool with that not going I back. <laughs> well, I still don't want to return to. But this was my favorite book as a kid. And I remember seeing it on I know I remember exactly where I was when I read it for the first time, which was I was in fourth grade and my teacher my favorite teacher uh had like a big bookshelf of all of these books and I think a lot of them were now that now how I know how teachers operate I think a lot of them were like her daughter's books her daughters were in high school at the time and so I think she kind of brought in like their whole collection and made it sort of her own mini library and I came across just as long as we're together and I picked it up and I feel like it was one of those books that like you know like a good tv show I just read it over and over and over again and then I didn't read it for like 20 years or 15 years this was my first return back to it I was so excited when you gave me some options of the books that we could talk about and this was one of them I was like oh my gosh how did she know that this is like my most favorite childhood book I didn't we were already in sync and I had no idea that's so funny I think I was probably around the same age when I read it for the first time so for those Mm -hmm. who don't know there's a companion title to this book which is here's to you Rachel Robinson um Mm -hmm. just as long as we're together came out in 1987 and then here's to you Rachel Robinson came out in 1993 so there was like Mm -hmm. six years between which is not insignificant when Judy Bloom is writing like book after book after book year in and year out for all these years right I think I may have read Here's to You, Rachel Robinson, first. And I remember that one being a big deal because the protagonist was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of like one of the first books that I read to that point that like really heavily featured a girl who was experiencing Judaism. And I'm half Jewish, so I really enjoyed that, like learning Mm -hmm. about that culture and sort of like seeing some parallels to my own life. And I think maybe I read that one first and then I came to Just As Long As We're Together, which like you don't, it doesn't really matter what order you read them in. But interestingly, and I didn't, realized this when I was a kid, but Stephanie Hirsch, who is the narrator and the protagonist of Just As Long As We're Together, is also Jewish, but that's like not a thing in this book. No. Um, It's much more of a thing in the Rachel Robinson book. That's right. And I think I only read the Rachel Robinson book one, now that you said it, I totally forgot it existed. And I think I read it maybe once or twice because like when it came out, I, well, it was already out when I had started reading Just As Long As We're Together, but I think that like if it wasn't a part of that teacher's very specific library. I think I like didn't know it existed. <laughs> I think after like the millionth time of checking just as long as we're together out of the school library, the librarian sort of was like, do you know there's another book? And I I read Here's to You, Rachel Robinson, but I think he still kept going back to just as long as we're together. I, it was so familiar to me. Even when I read it now, you know, for the first time in 15 years, I was like, I remember these lines. Like I remember, the, I, I remember so much. It was really like revisiting an old friend, but like, I mean, no, no Judy Bloom is wrong. You know what I mean? Like you can't go wrong with anything that she writes. Um, and so I was really happy to see that she was continuing the characters, but I don't think I, it meant anything to me at the time because I didn't have to wait. You know what I mean? If you read, um, just as long as we're together in 1987 and then you had to wait six more years to find out, you know, where these girls were and what was going on with them. I would feel that there might have been a little bit more urgency for me to read it. But I was just like very happy reading this book over and over and over again. I love that. So do you remember like what it was about this book that you loved so much that like kept bringing you back to it over and over? Because I've heard from some guests who say like I reread this book once, maybe twice. But it is rare that somebody says like, no, I came back to this again and again. And it was like a regular reread for me. So I'm curious like what parts of that you remember. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, my personality is such that like I do this a lot. Like I have a favorite books as an adult that I reread every year or like when I'm on the subway on my way to work and I just don't have the I'm not awake enough to sort of take in a new book. 
book, I'll be like, okay, let me return to something like that I know and I know the characters and I know what's happening because more often than not, if I try to start a new book on a a commute where I'm really tired, I'll have to just reread it again later because I don't really know what if I like took it in. And so I think like I was the same as a kid. And I think that what really got me about this book was I read it in fourth grade, but it's about seventh graders. And so, you know, that age difference, that separation between being eight and nine years old and being like 12 and 13 years old is so massive at the time that like reading about older girls. And I mean, so much of the book is about all of them getting their periods at different times and like being really kind of anxious about it and excited, but also nervous and scared. And like, that was new for me because I was eight and a half or nine years old. A lot of it was about boys. Like they had crushes and they would tape posters of like teenage Richard Gere to their ceilings. And like, that was cool to me. And like, at the time I also didn't know who Richard Gere was just like Stephanie in the book, she just thinks he's like a cute guy. She buys the posters. She tapes the poster of Richard Gere to the ceiling and she renames him Benjamin Moore. The best. Because because she saw the name on a paint can. And I think in fourth grade, I was like, yeah, that's a great name. Like the joke obviously makes sense to me now, but I didn't know in fourth grade that like Benjamin Moore was a paint brand. And that like, you know, that's kind of the stuff that Judy Bloom does. She like sneaks these little things in there and, you know, she's not making fun of young people when she does it. She's, she's being really authentic, which is like, yeah, cool name. Yeah. Saw it on a paint can at Home Depot. It's like, rolls why off I the tongue. Them? Yeah. Right, exactly. And I think a lot of that was really relatable to me, even though I hadn't gotten to that stage of life yet. And, you know, fourth grade is the time when your friendships start to change and you start to evolve and you're not just looking for another classmate that has been put in the same classes like you. You actually have like preferences about who your friends are and you have interests and hobbies and other people have different interests and hobbies. And I feel like, you know, in fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh grade, you're sort of coming into your own. And this was the first book that I read that was like sort of approaching that in a really digestible way. And it stuck with me. And I think I read it through, I mean, at least until the end of eighth grade. And then I probably moved on in high school to something else. But I mean, it was kind of an old faithful. And also I'll add that my parents didn't really let me watch TV as a kid. I was allowed to watch like one show a week and I could pick one show a week that I wanted to watch. And usually I picked Dawson's Creek. But um, <laughs> so books were like really the thing. So I had these favorites that that I would grab off the shelf, like when I was done with homework and my parents would let me read if we were weren't having dinner together as a family. I could bring a book to the table and read it at the table. And this, I remember this was the one that I grabbed over and over and over again. Yeah. So returning to it is really funny. I remember so much of it. I mean, the Benjamin Moore thing for sure. There's so much like kind of skimming over the idea of sex. Uh, there are th- some things that don't hold up and we can get to that. But yeah, there was just a lot of, a lot of stuff in here that she really captured, I think, you know, the mind of, I'll, I'll average it out and say a 10 year old girl. And also reading it now, I don't think it really occurred to me that these characters were 13 years old in 1987 because it felt like they could have been my age. So there's something really evergreen about their experiences because I was born in 1987, which means that by the time I was actually reading this book, the characters would all have been in their you know early 20s. But it still felt like these are these could have been people that I knew. And yeah, it definitely has like a timeless so well. feel for sure. Like even totally. now, I agree. Like this does not sound all that different from like some of the conversations that I had when I was a teenager, like in the early aughts. It feels very familiar. And listeners will know this, but I was always very into the idea of being twelve. Like when I was little, mm. twelve for me was like the ultimate age. I didn't really care about becoming like an official teenager and turning thirteen. I just wanted to be twelve. That's um, so interesting. Isn't that weird? And I like, I've it's always, funny. yeah, I've always been a writer. I've written stories my whole life. And if I go through all of the stories that I wrote from like first grade to sixth grade, every single character was 12. That is so funny. Yeah. So I always love reading. Do you know where that came from? I don't know. I don't know if I, I, I don't think I ever like, first of all, I like even numbers. So I think I've always been like, I've always leaned toward an even number for some reason. Sure. Um, who knows why? And mm-hmm. I think that, like, I, unlike a lot of the characters in Judy Bloom's books, I was not, like, that excited about the idea of, like, going through puberty. Like, that's something mm. that sort of surprised me again when I came back to Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret for the podcast a couple yeah. of months ago. And then again with Just As Long As We're Together. Like, the fascination that her characters have with, like, getting your period or, like, buying your first bra, like, that wasn't something that I... I wasn't mm. dreading it, but it was not, like, a fascination for me. And I think, if anything, like, it made me uncomfortable. I was definitely a little squeamish about it. And, uh-huh. um... 
not to out my mom, but I think my mom got her period when she was 13. And so I Mm -hmm. think I was, like, very aware that, like, this could be the turning point. And I, like, was not ready... I just wasn't ready to be excited about it. Um, That's really nice, though. That's like, it's. I mean, yeah, like a therapist would have like a field day with that. But it seems like 12, (laughs) like it's like the peak of the time in your life that you're actually enjoying. And 13 was probably really scary for you. Yeah, I also think like my elementary school went to sixth grade, Um, much like Steph's in this book. I think a lot of schools, it's like you you switch to middle school in sixth grade. So I think like. I don't even remember now. Yeah, I guess right. I guess I would have been turning 13 in seventh grade. So I think, it, and I was really happy at my elementary school. Like I was very content there. And so I think I was like, I get to stay here until I'm 12. So yeah, mm. I don't know. But I always like coming back to stories about 12 year olds just because it allows me a chance to sort of analyze that weird thing I had where I just wanted to be 12. And then I, I do remember like when yeah. I turned, when I turned 12, then when I was continuing to write stories, being like, okay, like how old is everybody now? Like I didn't want, you know, cause you always right. want to like write older than you are, I think when you're a kid so that was a strange transition yeah. well I was obsessed with being older so like my age was 17 I wanted to be 17 I thought being 17 and being a junior in high school was like the oldest coolest thing ever which is funny because yours is 12 so it's like right before a big year 13 mine was 17 right before becoming an adult yeah. I don't think there was anything to that with me because I like just wanted uh, so I, I'm the same way in a lot of ways that like I just kind of romanticized lots of different sort of phases of life but I had a birthday or I have a birthday that was at the end of the cutoff date. So everybody in my grade was older than me. Me too. And so like my, if you were, are you like a, an end of the year baby? I'm September 20th. So I was oh, like five. happy belated birthday. Thank you. I was five when I started first grade. Yeah. Yeah. I was a baby. And I'm November 27th. So oh. I was four when I started kindergarten up until almost like Thanksgiving. So all of my friends got to drive before me and most of my friends got their period before me. All of my friends got to do a lot of things before me. And even, even though everyone turned 30 before me, I still was like rounding up. Like my husband will make fun of me because I will say like about four weeks after my birthday, I'll tell everybody that I am the next year. And everyone's like, you can stop doing that now. But I'm so used to doing it from when I was a kid because everyone was like, I'm 13. I'd be like, I'm 12. So I would round up. And now I, even my parents don't know how old I am. I think my dad gave me a birthday card a few years ago that was like happy 28th birthday, but it was my 27th birthday. And so I've always been obsessed with being older. And I think that like, that was for me picking up this book off the shelf in fourth grade and reading about 12 and 13 year olds, like nothing could have been cooler. Like these were the coolest girls to me. And I loved how classic it was. And even though there wasn't like the internet really when I was reading this book, I think like there was just something that was so like, there were little moments that I loved. Like, um, do you remember the part where like when they were talking on, when they would talk on the phone, they would take the the phone into the pantry to yeah. get some privacy. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's so cool. Like, that's so cool. I mean, we don't have, have that anymore. And I don't think any 10 year old would know what I was talking about. If I was like, yeah, you take your phone into the pantry. They'd be like, what? And you actually make a phone call. Uh, but that was really right. And you might have so to talk cool to someone's to mom. Like you might have to be like, hi, is my friend home? That was the worst. Isn't that funny? And I still have some of my friends' home numbers memorized. And I remember that my mom wouldn't let me call anybody until 10 a.m. on weekends. Yep. And you like, couldn't, I couldn't call, call after eight. House. Yeah, that was my role. Talking about the idea of age, I think is an interesting Mm -hmm. like transition into one of the core issues that I saw happening between two of the main characters, Steph, who is our protagonist, and then Rachel, who is her like Mm -hmm. longtime best friend, like grew up together. Mm -hmm. Um, They do everything together. And then there's this like third girl that sort of enters the mix named Allison. She's the new girl. Allison. And Um, she's cool. She's cool. She's from LA. Her mom's a celebrity. Um, She's adopted, which Steph finds very fascinating. Yes, it's very glamorous to be adopted. Yeah, so there's this, like, tension that comes in when you bring in a third friend, which I'm sure we'll continue to talk about. But just on the topic of, like, age and maturity, I thought that one of the interesting sort of, like, tension points between Steph and Rachel that we see happening really early on is that Rachel clearly wants to be older. Like, she's ready Mm. to be mature. And I do think middle school is such a weird time because, like, there are people that are leaning toward being older. And then there are people that are kind of still, like, holding on to their, like, elementary school days and aren't ready to be older and that's more where Steph is like I don't think she's avoiding puberty so much that doesn't really Mm. seem to be the issue but she just like doesn't want to pretend to be a grown-up and Rachel is like very comfortable leaning into that which I thought was like a really interesting tension that you see like I want to say maybe from like 15 or 20 pages in because Steph is walking around without a shirt at Rachel's house and Rachel's like 
no, you need to put a shirt on, sort of implying, like, we can't do this anymore. Yeah. And that was, I, I had that dynamic with one of my closest friends. I was the Rachel, of course. I wanted to be older. And she was very happy just, like, living life. And um, she had no interest in boys. And I had to, I had crushes on boys. And she just wanted, she was just herself. Like, she, she didn't feel any pressure to, like, try to act a certain way or do a certain thing. I think she was even less self-conscious than Stephanie is. And I was probably a little even bitchier than Rachel is. But like, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a we're all exactly the same. Right. Until like those puberty years come. And then all of a sudden, everyone kind of like splits off onto the spectrum. And some people's bodies are changing a lot faster than other people's. And some people have um, and like, you know, romantic interests before other people do. And it starts to come in between your friendships. And I remember being really annoyed at my friend for not not wanting to to act cool and be cool or whatever I thought acting cool was. I'm sure it was really not cool at all. But like she really she would I remember she would come and she'd sit at the lunch table and she would start singing like Broadway songs really loudly. <laughs> and like we were in sixth grade and like, you know, we're the youngest. Like my middle school started sixth grade and went to seventh and eighth. And like eighth graders would be like, oh like, oh, like, oh, sixth graders. And I'd be like, oh my God, stop, stop singing. Like they're gonna think we're so uncool. And it did. It caused a little bit of a riff in our friendship. And I thought about that as I read this book. Like, you know, I was obviously in the wrong, but how could you blame me? You can't blame anybody. It's a really hard, weird time. Yeah, and they've been apart for the summer. So I think like what we don't necessarily get is I know that Steph goes to camp I forget if Rachel went to camp too but Steph's big thing is going to camp and so we meet them at the very beginning of the school year or a few days before school starts and so you know you kind of have to wonder like what happened over the summer that seems to have accelerated this like Rachel's personality definitely seems to be such that she's always going to try to be Miss Mature and that's how I always was despite the fact Mm. that I only wanted to be 12 again don't know why (laughs) that was my number but I'm still that way like I'm just wired to be a perfectionist I'm wired to want like the respect of older people yeah you're a people pleaser yeah yeah, and I feel like I always feel like I got a lot of positive attention when I was younger for being mature mature for my age and so I sort of leaned into that in my tween and teen years and so I think Rachel was wired that way to begin with it's clear that her parents put a ton of pressure on her there's like some hints to that throughout this book Steph's mom mentions a couple of things about like it's really hard to be Rachel or like it must be so hard to live in her house and I think there must be more of that. And here's to you, Rachel Robinson, which maybe we'll read later on for the podcast. But um, it seems like she has a lot of different kinds of pressure than Steph has. And so that's sort of setting up this potential for tension anyway. But I feel like something happened over the summer. Like they had these two very different experiences. And now they're having this divide. That's right. And you remember how long summer was at that age. I mean, summer is only eight weeks, but summer is a lifetime. I mean, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'll see you next year. And it's like your parents are probably rolling their eyes being like, it's two months. Like this will not, you know, this will go by so fast, but like people come back new and improved. And every September is like a a January 1st, you know, every grade that you start. And so I feel like starting that book right at the beginning of a time where there's all these like little mini resolutions being made and everyone kind of wants it the year to go a certain way. And then you put that on top of the pressure that they feel about their changing lives and their changing bodies. And I think that that's a recipe for, you know, disaster. And I think one of the other things that it becomes very clear in the book and what sort of unfolds over time is that, you know, Rachel might be getting a lot of pressure from home. And yeah, you might hear about that in the next book, but we also see that Stephanie is becoming more attuned to her parents' problems. And that's also an interesting theme, this idea that your parents are real people and they have lives outside of being your parents. And I think that that was something that I picked up on probably in my like second or third read of the book. You know, that's a huge theme of that age. Like these people don't just exist to take care of you. Like they have wants and needs and things to take care of themselves. And I feel like a lot of the book focuses on Stephanie's relationship with her mom and her dad and their sort of ongoing marriage problems. Um, Yeah, and for most of the book, Steph is like delightfully self-centered in a way that like a lot of 12-year-olds are. Yes, it's probably very relatable. And I didn't realize that when I was a kid. I mean, maybe I did a little, I don't remember, but it really struck me reading it this time that like she is so in her own world and part of it is because she has this eternal optimist thing going on which comes up again and again throughout the book where like she is just a naturally optimistic person which makes her very different than Rachel. Rachel actually kind of calls it out as a problem like she's Mm -hmm. like do you know what your problem is Steph? You're an eternal optimist which Mm -hmm. is pretty mean like 
that's not a bad thing to have going for you. Um, but I think part of Steph's self-centeredness is that like she just can't help but see everything in her bubble as good and happy. And so she yes. always just assumes the best of all people in all situations. She sort of throughout the book, like all we're getting all these hints about what's happening with her parents. We're getting all of these hints about this building tension coming from Rachel. Like Rachel's clearly dissatisfied with what's happening with Allison now being part of the group. It's yep. obvious that things in the family are not going that well. Like her dad's been in California for weeks on a quote unquote business trip and like right. nobody seems to know when he's coming back and he's not talking to their mom. But she is just like so focused on herself and like what she's dealing with that she doesn't notice it. And it's hard to condemn a 12 year old as an adult reader, especially because I feel like all of us were this way to a certain extent. Yeah. Although I, my mom had very little tolerance for it. Um, yeah. I yep. think that like there is a point in the book where her mom says you're not the only one that lives in this house because I think Steph is very much like setting the tone of what happens in their home yeah she's like very emotional and she's learning that that not everything serves her you know there's a I feel like the first half of the book is like everything that goes on around her whether it is her father in California I mean when her father comes back from California from this business trip they hint you know they hint throughout the entire fall like you know, she wants to know, are they going to go out to dinner when dad gets home? And her mom says, you know, I'm going to let you and Bruce, her little brother, go out to dinner um, with dad on your own. And she like totally doesn't get it. She's like, hmm, okay. And she kind of thinks like, wow, like mom doesn't care that dad's not home. Like everything is through her eyes when, you know, reading it as an adult, it's so obvious. And what's funny is that Stephanie's just learning about sex. And so she keeps applying sex to like everything that she hears. And there's all these conversations where it's very obvious that her parents are saying things like, you know, I don't really want to be around your father right now. Or like mom and dad don't really want to be together. And she's like, Oh, that's because later they're going to be alone and they're going to have sex. And it's like, and it's like, that's like, you know, she, she's like, okay, I'm understanding a little bit about what adults do, you know, when kids aren't around or how adults are, but she's getting it wrong. Like she's right, but she's wrong. They finally tell her that they're separating on Thanksgiving, which I think like is not, wasn't a great idea from their perspective, but it goes to show you that the whole argument that like Stephanie's parents have sort of while Stephanie's in the other room listening, because we can hear, we, you know, we hear and we see everything from Stephanie's perspective is probably this conversation of like, I thought you weren't hiding anything from her. And her mom's like, I wasn't like, they didn't ask No one cared to ask me what was going on. And that's like a huge part of Stephanie's growing process, which is like, you were so busy thinking about yourself or even thinking about your mom's intentions through like your own perspective of how adults operate that like, you couldn't even pick up on the fact that your parents were separating. And, and then it comes back and like, bites her, you know, on Thanksgiving and effectively ruins her holiday. That's sort of the turning point of the book, right? Like she's an eternal optimist and then her home life starts falling apart and she starts finding things, you know, outside of her house. Like she starts finding things with Allison's family and and Rachel's family and Jeremy Dragon, the boy at school that they all have a crush on. Like things are sort of, it's like way more complicated than I think we start the book out as. Her self-centeredness doesn't totally wane and I think it wouldn't have been true to the experience of being 12 if she had to have this big sort of epiphany and then became like this really, you know, big empath. But like, it's interesting to see her start to understand like she is not the center of everything. Yeah, I, I just feel like there was also some like lack of emotional intelligence in their house because she clearly yeah. is not empathetic at all. And I do think that the way that her parents handled all of this was pretty crummy. Um, As you mentioned, like, they basically said, like, well, if nobody asks, we won't say anything. I mean, your kids are 12 and 10. They're not Yeah, they can handle it. They're Right. right, They can handle it. And they also, like, deserve to know what's going on. It's not like her dad was in California for a week. We're led to believe that he's been there for several months. And it is, like, ridiculous that Steph doesn't pick up on something else going on. But she just hasn't been taught to pick up on those clues. Yeah. She's and been she's been sheltered from it. So she's why been would sheltered? She? Yeah, and they're not giving her the additional information that she needs. And so I think for mm. her parents to sort of like blame it on the kids and the fact that the kids didn't ask is really crappy. And then it just sort of puts everybody in this position of like needing somebody to blame for what's going on, which is such a dangerous position for any kid to be in. I think any kid who's like watching their parents go through a separation or a divorce or even watching their parents go through a fight, like it's our natural tendency to try to pick a side. And Steph mm-hmm. is like definitely trying to do that throughout the book where like she has moments where she's really mad at her mom. She says to her mom, if you weren't such a go-getter, this wouldn't be happening. If we had all right. gone to California, you and dad wouldn't be separated now. And then right. she sort of goes the other way 
where she like refuses to go spend the day in New York with her dad over Thanksgiving um, because she's thinking now it's all his fault because he was bored with his life and decided to go to California. So I think that like there was just a train wreck around this whole separation. And I do love a flawed parent in a kid's book. We talk about this on the show Absolutely. a lot. I think it's so important that kids see that like parents and pop culture aren't all like Ward and June Cleavers. Like it's more complicated totally. than that. And you can still love your parents. You can find like an appropriate, healthy, positive relationship with your parents and still acknowledge that like you're not always going to get along and they're not always going to make the best choices. So I love when in a book for kids, kid readers watch a kid protagonist have their eyes opened to some like difficulties in their relationships with their parents, but are still able to move forward. And just in the Judy Bloom sort of like way that she does things, even reading this in my thirties now and sort of being able to, I don't have kids, um, let alone a child that is 10 or 12 years old, but being able to sort of understand more where Stephanie's parents are coming from is so I think helpful for me. And it also just makes the book even better. Like in this like millionth reread, even though it's my first reread in like 20 years, it just felt like I was coming home to like an old friend and I didn't feel like I was reading a kid's book. I really felt like I was reading a book about life through the eyes of a 12 year old, but I I didn't feel like it was for children. And there's this one chapter that stuck with me as a kid and then returning to it as an adult, I was kind of laughing to myself. Do you remember the chapter? I think it's, I'm opening the book right now. I'm trying to find it. I think it's chapter 33 is when... Essentially, Stephanie's mom is going away for the weekend and she's going to visit Carla. Is Carla her friend or her aunt? I can't like tell who Carla is. Carla's her friend who like has right. like a swanky life in New York City. Right. Okay. I wasn't sure if they were like related or not. And then I I think I also was confused about that as a kid. But the whole entire chapter is about how Stephanie's mom bought earrings that are shaped like lightning bolts. Yeah. And it sends Stephanie on this spiral of like those are crazy earrings. Like she's going to go to New York and have a fling. She just learned about what flings are. She's very into that. She's very into fling. She's very into like adult relationships, but she keeps, she keeps trying to package them neatly in these little boxes where it's like, then you get separated and then you go to New York and you have a fling. And it's like, her parents are always kind of laughing at her because she's trying to sort of simplify it. But she, what she's really doing is trying to understand it. And so this whole chapter is like her mom did this sort of innocent thing, which was like, get some funky earrings. And her daughter, I think no one is wrong or right here, but her daughter basically takes that and, and says like, you never wear earrings like that. This is really hard for me to understand. Like the only reason you would buy earrings like that if you, is if you were trying to attract the attention of like a man for your fling. And it takes up an entire chapter. Whereas from like a parent's perspective, it's like, I didn't even think my kids noticed that like I would buy new earrings. And I feel like there's so much there to unpack. Being able to sort of go into that chapter from both sides and hear Stephanie's mom's perspective and Stephanie's perspective all over a pair of earrings that are sort of like whatever, sort of like a thoughtless purchase, uh, I thought was just a really telling and like kind of nice device that Judy Bloom used here. Yeah, it has been weird coming back to all of these books for the podcast, just like sort of balancing out my relationship as a reader to the kids and the adults Mm. Um, because obviously when you're reading these books as a kid the world of the parents and like of all the other adults in these stories seems so foreign but Mm -hmm. when I come back to them as an adult like I can see the adult's perspective which kind of makes me sad sometimes because especially when like the kid characters and the adults characters are having a fight I used to be like so fired up and on the kid side where now I'm like "Mm, I don't know I can see both sides but it is it's an interesting experience to come back to them and yeah. I think, yeah, in the case of the earrings, like the mom probably just saw them and was like, oh, cute. Like, I'm just going to buy them and they go with my outfit. But it does sort of bring back memories of like when I was 12, 13, everything seemed like such a big deal. And I do think that we're conditioned growing up to believe that like shit gets crazy when you're in middle school and things are yeah. supposed to be dramatic. And so yeah. I don't know that I was ever sort of an inherently dramatic like pot stirring kind of kid but I think I'd always thought that I was supposed to sort of like transition into that sort of mindset of like looking for problems looking for things to like fight with my mom about like because everybody tells you you're gonna fight with your mom when you turn 12 or 13 like you're gonna fight did you not fight with your mom I fought with my mom constantly I did not a lot and I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast a lot of it is because my parents were divorced and I had a great relationship with both parents but I was primarily with my mom and I don't have any like full siblings so when I was at my mom's I didn't have siblings around I have three sisters on my dad's side but 
when I was at my mom's, it was me and my mom and my, my grandmother lived with us too. But like, there was no room for me to be mad at my mom really, because if I didn't have my mom, I didn't have anybody. And my mom also had like a very low tolerance policy for attitude. Like there was no eye rolling. There was no sassing. It just was, there was a zero tolerance policy. And I think because I didn't have other options of people to hang out with, like I didn't push it too far. That is so interesting. I feel like I was the quintessential difficult teenager, but also I'm the oldest. I have two siblings. My sister's a lot younger than me. My brother's a couple years younger than me. I was a real drama queen. I was always getting in trouble. I was always talking back. And I think it was just because I was uncomfortable and and had a lot of I had a lot of emotions and I didn't have like a real healthy way of getting them out. And so they came out in like very weird ways. And I I wanted attention, you know, and that's how I got attention. There's one part of this book, and I'm sure you know what I'm about to say that I am so angry about and coming back to it, the amount of pressure and attention that is paid to weight and weight loss and eating habits made me so mad. And here's why I understand it was the eighties. It's a different time, but I personally have been uh, well, so we'll just, in case anyone listening doesn't really know. So basically that, you know, going through puberty, your body, obviously like news alert, your body changes, you know, what used to be baby fat sometimes can like slim out because you're growing really fast or you can gain more weight. Your hormones are going wild. Like everyone's like in the process of in their like, you know, halfway through their anamorphs sort of like right. mutation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we're all like, we have unibrows, we have braces, like what are, you know, my hair was always like really greasy because I don't think I washed the conditioner <laughs> out of my hair ever. I didn't really know, <laughs> understand what I was doing, but like, it's an awkward time. And now I see, do you ever like look at YouTube videos of like 13 year olds and you're like, okay, I didn't look like that when I, yeah, <laughs> like they don't, yeah. They, they or like too 14 much year old influencers so. are like beautiful. Yeah. But my yeah, mom like used to say that, like, I remember distinctly this conversation my aunt and my mom had when we, we were at a mall, my cousin, my mom and my aunt and my cousin's like three years younger than I am. And I remember like being on an escalator, the four of us and my mom and my aunt being like, sort of in reference to my cousin and I being like, yeah, we didn't look like you guys when we were 13 and 14 because they grew up, you know, they would have, I guess that would have been like the seventies. So they had like big hair and like fashion that they now look at as terrible, but we have the same response to kids that are in their teens now. So I don't know. It's just like really weird cycle where I think we're always going to be comparing. It's so messed up. Totally. And we're like, oh, kids these days when our parents were like, oh, kids these days. Exactly. So I think the biggest problem I had with this book is that Stephanie gained some weight over the summer. You know, her body's changing or she's or maybe she's eating stuff that she used to be able to eat and nothing would change. It doesn't really matter because her weight does not matter at all. But it is a huge part of this book. It's a huge part of this story is that you know, the guys in her grade call her El Chunko and Rachel comments on her lunch sometimes. And her mom's always talking about her body Mm -hmm. and her mom's always going on diets at home. And that's trickling down to Stephanie. And I think that part of me, well, I've been at war with my body forever, like most of us have been. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had a mom who was very obsessed with health and working out because that was the theme of the 90s. I mean, like if you were a kid in the 90s, you could not escape like snack wells culture. Like everything was like low fat, low sodium, no salt, like no sugar. And it totally, whether my mom meant it for it too or not, but like it took up a lot of brain space. And I can't believe how much they talk about weight in this book. And what gives me hope is that I don't think this would fly. I think like any editor or agent worth their salt would look at this manuscript today and say like, we don't need as many sort of scenes where Stephanie is like thinking about how much she weighs and talking about her clothing and stepping on the scale I mean, there's a part where she gets on the scale and her mom like freaks out. Yeah. Like, is like, oh my gosh, like we're going to see Dr. Claff. Like you've gained 10 pounds. And Stephanie doesn't really seem to care that much. And that's really the, the part that broke my heart the most was that she's like, I don't really care. Like, yeah, sure. I have to wear bigger t-shirts, but like it's everyone around me that seems to really care. And that, that hurts. And I think that's the hardest part about looking back on childhood and understanding that your parents just want the best for you. And Stephanie's mom obviously was just, you know, quote unquote, concerned about her quote unquote health. And that's where all of this came from. And I'm sure Judy Bloom wrote that from a place of health is a big part of life. But it did seem like there was so much attention paid to weight that it became a plot 
point. I'll make an exception because this, is, this book is 32 years old and things have changed. But I think because of knowing how how important this book was to me um, as a kid, I don't know that I noticed until now how much of it is centered around physical appearance. And it kind of makes me sad. Yeah, it's super problematic, all the weight stuff, as listeners know, because I've talked about it in relation to other books, like same in terms of like being at war with my body forever, like super dysmorphic, have had disordered Mm -hmm. eating in and out for my whole life. I think that a book like this today, there would need to be a different kind of resolution to it. And I think that's what's so frustrating about the way that weight and Stephanie's like quote unquote like war with her weight is portrayed in this book is that like there's not a resolution. Like there's no healthy sort of moral to what's been going on. Like we don't actually find out that maybe Stephanie has learned a lesson that like she can be healthy without worrying about her weight. Like yeah, like she's beautiful no matter what. And right. No one's telling her that. It just sort of like is like there and then it's not there. There's Yeah, you're right. There's like nothing that like sort of wraps it up. Yeah, it would be one thing if, you know, Judy Bloom had shown this sort of evolution that Stephanie was having with eating. Because I do think that like it's interesting that she introduces this concept of emotional eating. Because that's not a story that I've read in other books. Not even necessarily like adult books. Like, But it's a very real thing. And so many people of all ages deal with it. And so the fact that we see Stephanie defaulting to food anytime she's having a bad day like it starts really around Thanksgiving when she finds out that her parents are separating she will sort of like hide away and like eat a full pumpkin pie and she'll sort of like sneak food late at night and those are all things that are very real Um, yeah they're coping mechanisms and I think I did that as a kid and I think I found that really relatable And you're right. I think if there had been a resolution that had sort of gotten me more on the path of like, hey, why don't you think about like, why are you hungry or are you upset? And how, you know, if you're upset, then where else can we put those emotions or who can we talk to about those emotions? I feel like that would have been really helpful. But it kind of seemed like, well, like Stephanie's parents are divorced and like now she's getting fat and like, well, life just sucks. And it's like, oh, okay, well. (laughs) There has to be something. There has to be, like, a happy medium there. And her mom was encouraging her to lose weight, as you mentioned. Like, they'd sort of had this big reckoning moment with the scale. And to my mom's credit, like, we never had a scale in our house. And so I I think that that's really important. And I also, like, not to promote an unhealthy conversation around food, but, like, even if the lesson in the book had been, like, if you're hungry, like, fine. Like, bodies are hungry. It's great to eat. But, like, don't do it in hiding. Like, you know, have a conversation with your parents about like what foods you might want to have. Obviously that's putting like a very neat bow on it, but like, I just no, think there's a missed right. opportunity in this book because if you're going to present the issue, the resolution shouldn't then be like, Oh, my mom's instructing me to lose weight. I'm going to do her jazzercise videos with her. And then right, in, like, yeah. the final scene of the book, when Rachel and Stephanie sort of reunite after their fight, Rachel comments on the fact that Stephanie's her- lost weight, lost weight, which is so right. messed up. I was just listening to a podcast recently. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, it's an episode of the Chatty Broads podcast, and it was about uh-huh. how dangerous diet culture is. And the woman who was on was talking about how, like, people always notice when you lose weight, even if it's and to an unhealthy degree. But nobody ever says, like, oh, it looks like you've, like, put on a few pounds. You look really healthy. And right. that's why it's so screwed up. And I had just listened to that, like, the day before I finished this book. And so that's what I was thinking about. Like, of course, Rachel, who's this perfectionist, who Stephanie's always trying to measure up to um, and seems to be naturally thin, like, she's going to comment on Stephanie's weight loss. Exactly. Yeah, I think you kind of touch on a really important So, I mean, also like I'm in my thirties and I'm still struggling with this. I just wrote something for glamour a few months ago about how, like when I am stressed out, I eat. And when I'm stressed out, I gain more weight, regardless of whether I'm eating or not. Like my body just like goes into kind of this like survival mode where I put on pounds. And before my wedding, I gained like 20 pounds and it was horrible because I was obsessed, not with like losing weight, but I was obsessed with, um, for my wedding, I was obsessed with this idea that like, I was not going to let whatever I felt about my body, like get in the way of enjoying my wedding. It was like, I look like what I look like, you know, my fiance or my husband now like knows what I look like. (laughs) Like there's nothing like, because there is so much pressure and even being 30 and, and feeling like I should have graduated from all of this stuff. It just, it doesn't go away. And I think like you touch on a really, really good point, which is something that I totally missed as a kid which is that I was a kid who, who ate when I was emotional. There are some people who are like, oh, I'm so stressed. I can't eat a thing. I am very much like, I am so stressed. Like I will order a hamburger and Chinese food and the pizza. Mm-hmm. And like, it'll help satiate some of like 
this emotion that I'm feeling. And I think that what would have been really important, even further to further your point about her mom kind of bringing up this conversation with her is saying like, it is not a coincidence that some of your behavior around food is happening at the same time you are experiencing all of these different life changes and life emotions. And, you know, me and your dad are getting separated or whatever. It seems like you might be turning to food to help you feel better. What else can we do to help you feel better? Like you could talk about it. You could start a journal, like let's go see a therapist. And I think that what ended up happening was these two very big sort of topics, which are a relationship with food and in a relationship with your body and the tumult going on in your life seem to be presented in this book as two totally separate things. When in fact they are probably very, very, very connected. And I think that if at an early age, someone had been able to say to me, it doesn't matter if you're eating French fries or an apple. It doesn't matter if you're hungry or not. It seems like there are emotions and feelings that you need to get out and you might be using food and eating as a way to sort of like self-soothe. And like, let's talk about some other options that you have. Not even mentioning health, not even mentioning weight. I think that Stephanie would have been able to reach the same resolution of like, maybe I'll do a jazzercise every once in a while. Like maybe I'll go for a walk. Like maybe I don't have to sit with this pumpkin pie and think about my parents divorcing and feeling like the only thing that will make me feel better is eating this pumpkin pie, whether I want it or not, whether I'm hungry or not. And that might've made a huge difference. And I would hope that today, if a book like this is written, and I think one of the best parts about just as long as we're together is like, this is a really simple story. You know, this is a story of like three girls who are sort of just going through life's changes together. And I feel like they don't publish a lot of books like this anymore. Mm. Like everything has to be like a little bit more exciting or like, well, what about like themes or what about this? And it's like Judy Bloom really has the market cornered on just like the regular lives of these three people. I feel like that was a missed opportunity. And I was, I would really wonder what she would say about it now. Um, and reflecting on, on how she wrote about body image and weight and stuff, especially knowing that this was going to be read by so many impressionable girls. And for so many years, because here we are again talking about exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, this is still a book that I would, I would lo- see, I would love to give this book. I think up until reading it now, I think if like a ch- if a, one of my friends who has older kids said like, what's a great book that you read when you were a kid that, that my daughter should read, I would have said this book. And now I might not say this book hmm. because of all the weight stuff. I think I might actually would skip it because that scares me because you can say to a kid, you know, don't pay attention to that stuff. It was a different time. Things were different, but like, it doesn't change the fact that all kids sort of feel this way about their bodies and they don't need anything to sort of confirm that their their thoughts are correct and so I would be kind of reticent to do that myself yeah it just feels like a missed opportunity if you're going to bring it up just resolve it differently um I do think it's like totally okay to sort of present some of these issues because they aren't things that kids experience although I do think the conversation is changing I think parents are sort of being encouraged to talk about this kind of stuff differently and hopefully that takes um Mm -hmm. but I think that like it's okay to present it it just has to be resolved so missed opportunity there I do think we should spend a little bit of time talking about the friendship aspect, of course, because that's so central to this book. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about you and about Hey Ladies, which, side note, I'm obsessed with, and sort (laughs) of the fact that you've explored friendships in that way in that book. And then I know that you do school visits, so I'm sure you're around kids and, like, sort of observing how friendship dynamics work at that younger age. So you sort of have, like, a bird's-eye view on friendship and hopefully on, like, girl friendships over the years. And sort of the core tension in this book, or at least the core tension as I see it, is, like, can you have more than one best friend? Sure. (laughs) And that's something that I so remember contending with as a kid and, like, having a best friend and being very jealous when I felt like that best friend had other girls that she was, like, verging on best friend status with. Oh, yeah. And I struggle with that even as an adult. Um, You know, I have a handful of girls that I I call my best friend, and so I sort of have accepted the fact that it's okay to have multiple best friends. I think that happens more as you get older because then you can be like, this is my high school best friend. This is my college best friend. Or like, this is my best friend from this part of college, and then I got this other best friend. Like, the more life experience you rack up, the easier it is to, like, designate best friends into different chapters and then you sort of feel better about being like yes it's all equal but I think it's interesting I think there's also this like 
whole concept of three being a crowd, which my grandmother Mm -hmm. always, like, would yell at me when I would have two roommates. Because when I moved to New York, for the first, like, three or four years that I lived here, I always had two roommates. And my grandmother would always be like, three's not a good idea. Which sometimes it was, (laughs) to varying degrees of success. So I think, like, those sort of truisms are put to the test in this book. Like, the truism of, like, it's only okay to have one best friend. Or on the opposite of, like the more the merrier and then of course this three's a crowd idea so I just love your thoughts on how that plays out in this book especially given like the way that you've witnessed and observed and written about and like researched friendship if listeners don't know um I co-wrote a book called hey ladies um with my friend Michelle Markowitz and the the premise of the book is it's all written through reply all emails and texts and sort of any sort of digital communication. And it's all, it's a year in the life and every chapter is a different month of this group of friends. And it's sort of unclear on on how they all met. It seems that like maybe someone's been like a lifelong best friend brought into a group from college. And then the uh, New York city roommate is also friend, you know, so it's like a lot of different walks of life. And one of them gets engaged and the entire book is sort of this year of emails around planning for this one person's wedding. And, and it's a parody. So it's not supposed to be, I would really hope that no one would be like, this is exactly like my friend. So it's a parody of sort of the way that women especially, um, tend to communicate with each other around these sort of like big life events. And so there's a lot of you know, oh, by the way, can you just like Venmo me like $800? Like, you know, like a lot of like, oh, we never talked about this, but everyone owes $1,200 for like uh, Jen's bachelorette weekend yeah. in Paris. It's supposed to be funny. And you're supposed to sort of walk away from it being like, I have friends who embody lots of little different parts of each of these girls. We are all guilty of this kind of behavior. But like what we try to say is like, you know, we're not making fun of any sort of like type of woman. Like we're making fun of ourselves. Like this is exactly how we act um, in these situations. And so writing a book about friendship from the aspect of sort of focusing on how horrible people can be to each other, even when they are friends, was really fun because it sort of made us appreciate the great friends that we have. But also I think it kind of helped us come clean about like no one is perfect and there is no such thing as a perfect friendship and not ever, you know, just like relationships, it can't be 50, 50 all of the time. You know, sometimes people are giving more and getting less. And sometimes those same people who gave more last time are getting more this time and giving less. I mean, it's always sort of like a balance. And so that book has been really funny because more than anything, we've gotten so much good feedback from people who are like, like my best friend is doing this right now. Like she thinks she's so normal. And then she got engaged and like, she wants to go to like Australia for like, (laughs) you know, like it's like, Uh it's really funny. Everyone kind of falls into these tropes. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about ourselves, our personalities, the personalities of our friends. And I would say that actually the biggest friendship lesson that came out of writing this book. And then when I do school visits, I'm usually talking about my kids book series, which could not be more different than Hey Ladies. Um, It is called Work It Girl, and it is a focus on women and the careers that they built for themselves. So my first two books were about Oprah and J.K. Rowling. My second two that are coming out in March are Mae Jemison, who was the first black woman to go to space, and uh, Michelle Obama. And I'm working on Ellen DeGeneres and Beyonce now. So it's all women who are like still alive and like still in their careers. And, you know, you realize when you go back to school that like a lot of kids don't really have access to a ton of books about women who aren't already dead. Um, It's really funny. Like when I ask kids for like ideas of women in careers that I could be writing about, they're all like Amelia Earhart. Like they only know like it's really like even in 2019, they can name like three women. So interesting. Um, it is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, so with, with friendship, what was interesting is that the biggest lesson of all came from writing a book with a friend and having this common goal to create something together that we both really believed in. And then eventually along the way, realizing that we had really, really different visions for it the entire time. And so the biggest lesson that I took from this was like, sort of how to work well with someone else together, you know, and like I've been working now in the real world for like 12 years and, you know, I've done tons of collaborations, like whether it be like group projects at school or like stuff at work, but like this was the first time that a friendship was really put to the test in like a work, a working environment. And so I learned a lot about myself writing a book about friendship. I learned how I operate. I learned where a lot of my blind spots are and where 
a lot of my flaws are as a person. And I actually had to come to terms with them because in order to be able to have a conversation with somebody and sort of get to a resolution of like how we're going to work together, you have to be honest with yourself about the things that you're not so good at. And so even more than writing the characters and writing the book, Hey Ladies, I think it was like a real self-exploration journey for myself to realize like, you know, these are the things I can work on. Like these are the places I can grow. Well, and I think that when Rachel and Steph have like their reckoning at the end of the book, that's kind of what they realize. I mean, yep. listeners, you have to come back to the book if you want to know all the conflict that leads them to this confrontation. <laughs> it's basic stuff. Um, yeah. But similarly, like they are sort of coming to terms with like, oh, like maybe I'm not such a great communicator. Like maybe I wasn't right. paying attention to the clues that you were putting out there. And so I think like this is what has to happen in friendships. You experienced it writing a book with your friend. Like these two yep. 12-year-olds in this book experience it over a conflict because a third friend has come into the group. So yep. it's like something that everybody has to deal with throughout their life in different iterations. Um, and I love that like you can share that story about something that happened to you like as an adult woman recently writing totally. a book and it resonates like with the same story that you and I just read for the podcast. So um, yeah. I love that. It's funny. Like when you're younger, you kind of are like, okay, well, when is the part where like I learn everything and like, I'm done growing, you know, you're like every, you know, especially when you're younger, you're like, Oh, like a fight with a friend. Like when is the year where everything is just like fine. And the truth is, is that, you know, the fights with friends and the growing pains obviously sort of dissipate, but you are always growing. Like you're always like learning about yourself. Like it was really difficult for Michelle and I to sit and have like very real conversations where we can both be right. And we can also both be wrong. We each had complaints about the other one. And our complaints did not invalidate our own flaws. You know, like I could say to Michelle, like, you know, you aren't the best communicator. And if she's listening now, she knows that that's how I feel. It's <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a secret anymore. And she could say to me like, well, okay, fine. I'm not the best communicator, but like, sometimes you sort of are like pretty bossy. And mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I am. And like, both of those things can be true. And then we have to basically come to the table and put our egos aside and say like, all right, well then how are like, how can we use the things that we are good at to our advantage? Like, what are the things that, what we really figured out? And I think that, you know, you don't have the maturity at Rachel and Stephanie's age to be able to do this. But like when you're older, one of the best parts about really being honest with your friends about where you fall short and, and where the other person falls short is that you can sort of like pool your strengths. Like when, when Michelle and I finally could sit down and be like, here are all the things you're good at. So like, you're going to handle those things. And and here are all the things I'm good at and I'm going to handle these things and sort of instead of just kind of nitpicking each other for the things that we weren't good at, realizing that there were a lot of things that both of us were good at and that the other one could pick up the slack where the where the other had weaknesses totally just changed the narrative of the entire conversation. And I think it's like that's a lot to ask of a seventh grader. But I think those first sort of formative years in managing friendships that you know, when you're in seventh grade, I know that I'm kind of like going off on a tangent, but it just occurred to me. It's like seventh grade's kind of sixth and seventh grade are kind of the first years where like, if you have a conflict with a friend, like your mom is not going to get involved mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. You know, like when you're in first and second grade, like it is pretty likely that like if something were to happen at school for one thing or another, you know, it's like, okay, well maybe mom will call her mom and they'll figure it out. Uh, and maybe the teacher will get involved and maybe that, but when you're in sixth and seventh grade, it's kind of on you. You have to learn how to manage that on your own. And that can be, that's like a lesson all in itself. Yeah, that's um, true. And I do think like Rachel and Steph in this book are like starting to dip their toe into those really productive conversations. Right. And I have like high hopes for them. I think they're going to figure it out. I think they're going to do I do too. I think they're going mean, to stay together. They're, they're well on their way. And, you know, and hopefully that I would love, oh my gosh, I would love a book about them when they're 30. That would be great. Oh my God. I would love to know like also like how they're handling like being parents if they're parents. I kind of imagine that Stephanie has like a million kids and Rachel's kind of this like glamorous single. Yeah. Sort of sophisticated. I would just die to know what happened to them. I like literally want to petition every single one of my favorite um, childhood literature authors and be like, can you please write follow-ups? Judy, if you're <laughs> just, listening. Just for me. Yeah, Judy, please. Judy, please. So on we, the whole, has, like, you. has coming back to this book made you love it all the more or has it not held up for yes. you generally? I miss books like this. Yeah. I think, like I said earlier, like it, it makes me love it. I mean, like I hate that one part, but I, it, does, it doesn't totalize the experience for me. I think... 
I miss books where it's just like, this is a book about friendship and, you know, being a writer myself. And I know that, you know, this too, cause you're like such a reader and like super involved in this world. Like you understand what it takes to write a book about friendship in 2019. Like you have to be writing like a brand new story. You know, you have to be writing something that has never been done before. And I feel like Judy Bloom was doing that 30 years ago, but there's something so solid about a book that is really captures the seventh grade experience in a way that is authentic to my own. And, you know, I think to all of the sort of parts of being 12, that no matter what year you were born and no matter what year you were 12, this all sort of rings true. And so coming back to it just made me feel like, you know, this is for me, this is a classic and there are things I would change about it, but I am mostly just, I was so excited to have the opportunity to read it again. And I I honestly think that this might be something that I like pick off my shelf once or twice a year and just flip through it and read it just like I did when I was a kid. So I really appreciate the opportunity you gave me to go back to it. I love to hear that. Well, other than just as long as we're together, have you read anything lately that you've been loving that you would recommend? It doesn't have to be YA or middle grade, of course, whatever you're into. So I loved um, Gia Tolandino's Trick Mirror. Me too. Um, which I'm sure everyone did. And I'm I'm only a little, I mean, I'm not biased because it's amazing and Gia's amazing, but Hey Lady's got a mention in it, which I was really excited about. It did. I remember uh, that. <laughs> in her wedding essay, which I was like, when I read it, I screamed and nearly like dropped the book out the window. <laughs> um, but I also read recently Three Women by mm-hmm. Lisa either Tadio or Tadeo, yeah. which is narrative nonfiction, which I usually do not like at all. I'm not a nonfiction person. And everyone was talking about this book and I picked it up and I brought it to a friend's pool and I didn't do anything all day, but read it. I finished it in one sitting Wow, and I loved it. I thought it was so good. Did you read it? I did. I, I had more mixed feelings about it than I expected. I know to. it was controversial. I think I just, the hype was like so huge around it. And I think I was Mm -hmm. ready to like have that kind of experience. And it actually took me like kind of a long time to read. It also was like a weird time in my life to read it. Like I had some personal stuff going on. And so I feel like I wasn't in the right headspace, but I don't know. I think I need to give it another chance because it clearly is like amazing writing and great reporting and like important stories. I think maybe I just, maybe it was like too close to the hype and I was like a little too excited and like invested in having, you know what? Yeah. I mean, reading hype on books, like, if I can give anybody any advice, like, don't read anything about a book until you've read the book. Yeah. Um, I feel this way about TV shows. I feel this way about movies because there are things that everyone's like, this sucked and, like, it's the worst thing. And then I read it or I read it or I watch it and I'm like, wait, I loved it. What does that say about me? But I didn't know. I knew everyone was talking about three women, but I didn't know what everyone was saying about three women. And so I read it with absolutely zero knowledge of the discourse. And I think that helped me formulate my opinion immensely because, you know, I am not like most people in this world. We're not a hundred percent independent thinkers. And I think had I really like read the hype or like been like, this is going to be a, like a life changing book. I doubt it. I would have had the same sort of experience. So I get it. I think you're, I, you are not the first person that has told me that you're actually like more people told me that than others. But when I keep recommending this book, I'm like, don't read anything about it before you read it. Just develop your own opinion before you get to it. Yeah. I feel like a lot um, of people had sort of like more philosophical reasons about not liking it. And that wasn't, that's not really where I'm coming from. I just, I don't know. I think it had all of these elements going for it that like, I know I should have loved and usually love. And for some reason, like the exact mm. cocktail of it just wasn't working for me at that moment. So I think I just need to go back sure. to it. I'm going to include links to both of your recommendations in the show notes, along with a link to just as long as we're together and a link to your work at girl series. And of course a link to Hey ladies, I have to tell you, I think like at least three or four guests have recommended Hey Ladies as like their no. recommended title at the end of the oh. at the end of SSR. Oh my god. And I'll say like my one recommendation with Hey Ladies because I'm obsessed with it is like do not read it alone on a trip with your husband because I did that. Yeah. Like I brought it on I think our second anniversary trip okay. and I could not stop laughing. I was having the most fun reading it. And I, I kept being like, wait, 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 I have to read this to you. Like, I'm going to wait, I'm going to read this to you. It's so funny. And he, of course, was oh like, my God. he was like, okay. And I was like, no, I, no, yeah, no, did you hear it? Like, did you hear what I said? And he was like, uh, oh my God. He was like, haha, like, sounds funny. So that would be my one tip. Any other place you should read Hey Ladies because it's awesome. Um, that makes my day. <laughs> but I'll include links to all Thank of those you. titles in the show notes for this episode. Caroline, it was so nice talking to you and I really appreciate your time. Oh, Allie, you too. This was so much fun. And I will say, I want to give one last, uh, like sort of note to listeners. A lot of the Judy Bloom books get 
covers, like get new covers to sort of relate to whoever sort of demographic they're trying to reach. So I got the copy that I'm reading right now on Etsy and it is the original sort of first edition cover. And it made the, I don't, I cannot explain why, but it made the experience of reading it with the original cover, um, or the one that I was used to reading as a kid so much better. So I would take a look around on eBay or Etsy if, uh, the aesthetic of the book is very important to you because the new sort of updated cover didn't really sit well with me. So that is the one tip I would give. That's a great tip because I've been getting <laughs> the new covers for all of the Judy Blooms and they yep. are in various degrees of weird. The um, right? the redesign for Are You There, God, Me, Margaret was particularly controversial among SSR so people because I was like posting yeah. pictures of it on my Instagram and people were pissed. Like people were yeah. not happy because it's like a text bubble kind of thing um which like doesn't make any sense so that's a really good tip and listeners if you like the old covers that's where you should go (laughs) thank you so much for having me this was so delightful thank you um, i hope we get to talk again soon i know me too bye bye thanks so much for listening to the ssr podcast Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.